Hello and welcome to episode 19 of our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightning. I'm here with Pastor Michael Zarling. And blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. We're going to look today at 2 Corinthians uh, chapters 4 through 8. And uh, one of the things that you can keep in mind throughout the book of Corinthians, uh, I forget if I mentioned this last time, but it's worth mentioning again, uh, the word we... Uh, it pops up a lot, the first person plural form of uh, we, and it, it's kind of a tricky thing to track. It's an easy enough thing to notice, but uh, it's tricky to track sort of when does Paul say we, and he means all Christians, anybody with faith in Jesus, uh, when does he mean the we, that is the ministers who are called to share God's word publicly as representatives of the church? And, and then when does he mean we as the, the immediate apostles who were the direct eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ? Um, it's just a, a little tidbit to carry with you as you get into 2 Corinthians. That's a good point. I had never thought that before. Well, I, I better credit uh, Professor Joel Frederick with pointing that out. Um, uh, in uh, chapter 4... Uh, we have, now I'm saying we, uh, in chapter four, you come across the, um, uh, more of the endorsing that Paul is trying to do of the true gospel. And, and he's trying to show that he has credentials. He has every reason for the Corinthians to trust his message uh, over against the false apostles. Uh, and he sort of is struggling because when you're promoting yourself, it can kind of seem, uh, you know, sort of self-absorbed to say, you know, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And here's why you should listen to me because I'm an expert at whatever. Um, so he, you, you also get that tension that Paul is feeling uh, when he talks about commending himself. He doesn't really like to do that, but he kind of needs to do that for the sake of um, uh, winning over the Corinthians. Yeah, and then he is comparing the true gospel, like you said, Pastor Lightning, to the false gospel. Verses 3 and 4, he said, even if our gospel is veiled, and he's referring back to the veiling of the gospel, back with Moses wearing a veil after he saw the glory of the Lord in the tabernacle uh, in chapter 3, it's veiled among those who are perishing. In the case of those people, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing clearly the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Uh, there is, he's talking about the God of this age being Satan, uh, that Satan does not want people to see or hear the gospel, and many blindly follow him. People today look at Christianity being old and outdated and sexist. They're veiled to the truths of God's word, which is actually fresh and timeless and liberating. So in reading a news story this week, uh, I found this quote. God didn't really create male and female. He just created two groups, and whatever those groups wanted to identify as, or whatever those two groups wanted to do, that was completely their choice, because there is no such thing as male or female. So I hear that narrative, and then I would counter with the very first chapter of the Bible, where God clearly says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. He created them. Or 
A few chapters later, in Genesis 5, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and named them man when they were created. Uh, So our age is being veiled by Satan, so they can't even see clearly that there are two genders, but God shows it very clearly in his scripture. When uh, we did a read-through of this verse in a Bible class a few years ago, it kind of uh, caught some people off guard uh, when you mentioned verse 4, the God of this age. Uh, if you're just sort of half-heartedly paying attention in Bible class, um, you might get asked a question and you think, oh, well, this is talking about God. But then uh, the person that I'm thinking of they had to look again and say, oh, oh, that's a lowercase g. <laughs> it's it's the God of this age talking about Satan. Um, and th- I guess that's a good reminder that, yeah, he does have, uh, God has, the true God has given Satan certain powers and and authority and abilities that um, make him uh, very much God-like in how he can disrupt and and cause chaos and and command. Certain things are at his command, and that's kind of scary. Yeah, but people think that Satan has the same power as God, but we need to remind them that Satan's just an angel, a very powerful angel, the most powerful of them. But like Revelation talks about, he's a dragon or think of him like a dog on a leash. You know, mm-hmm. when the dog, uh, you know, when the dog gets out of control, you just yank that leash back. And that's what God does with the devil. When the God of this age goes too far, God, he's the master. He just yanks the, the collar on, the, on Satan and he starts yelping and he can't do anything. He's um, yeah. We don't we don't teach dualism. Really, is what you're saying. We, there's not there's not equal forces. Yeah, that's what I was talking about. Dualism. <laughs> well, the two two forces that you know, one good and one. E- I I remember a catechism student years ago when I was a vicar saying that one time, like, uh, why is there evil in the world? I asked the question, why is there evil in the world? Something like that, and and she said, oh, to balance out the good. And that's the that's that's yin and yang, right? Yeah, yeah. The d- dualism that uh, there's there's equal forces of good and evil, and uh, no, there's there's only one superior force of good. That's God, and um, evil is evil is really the lack of goodness. That's that's the best way to think of it. Um, I kind of want to come back to uh, what I was saying before about Paul's self-promotion that he, he, he you can tell how uncomfortable he feels about doing this with what he says in verse 5. He, he has to remind them, we're not preaching ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And it, we play a role. We are the servants for Jesus' sake. And then he compares the gospel to a light shining in the darkness. And I know as Christians, we get so frustrated with the way our world is and the way unbelievers act, but they can only act according to their sinful nature. They're groping around in the darkness. They need the light of Christ, Paul says. And then in verse 7, he says that we, and whether that's, like you said, the we is that preachers, is that us as Christians, but we hold this treasure in clay jars to show that its extraordinary power is from God and not from us. And there, think of the clay jars of Paul and the apostles. You know, they were afraid, running away, hiding, but they had a treasure to share. And then 
Pastor Lightning and I and the people in our pews were cracked pots. <laughs> uh, and yet we have a treasure that's worth more than anything that you can imagine. We have the water of baptism, a holy communion, reconciling with God, absolution, the power of prayer, God's word. As we heard in the Ascension service on Thursday that we have a king who is enthroned on high. You know, that's a great treasure, but it looks like it's just hidden in a, a regular clay jar. <laughs> you, uh, yeah. If anybody was at that Ascension service, uh, you might have noticed that when I was saying the uh, words of institution for Holy Communion, that I was talking about the bread, but I was facing, did you see that? I did see it. I was facing, I was facing the wine, uh, and I kind of, after I realized I was, I was facing the, the wrong element, well, God's word, thankfully, is powerful and effective, and uh, it, it, it consecrates wh- whatever direction I'm facing, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that kind of reminds me of being a cracked pot when I make mistakes like that in the church service, and, uh, but the other thing I think we have in common with Paul is uh, you, you were just rattling off a list a minute ago. You were, you were talking about baptism and communion and absolution and uh, ministry of the keys. And, and uh, that's, that's kind of what Paul does here. Uh, he's going to do it a lot more at the end of 2 Corinthians, but he starts to get his engine revved up here in verses uh, 8 and 9. Uh, he talks about being hard-pressed, not crushed, perplexed, not despairing, persecuted yet not forsaken, struck down yet not destroyed. Um, we, we preachers like our lists. We like to, to rattle off lists and I think that's a good thing. Um, and, and whatever you are, whether a lay person or a preacher, um, you speak out of what has been built up in your heart. And that's, uh, what we come across in verse 13. Uh, Paul talks about believing and then talking about what you believe. Uh, did, unless there was uh, other things in the first part of the chapter, did you want to move on to that? Just real quickly with verses 10 through 12, Paul talks about being threatened by death. Uh, and I think that's something that we've forgotten this past year, that so many of us <laughs> have uh, been so afraid of protecting life that we've forgotten how to live. We've forgotten, like Paul says, we're dying every day. We're dying because of sin. But more importantly, Paul says that as Christians, we're to be dying to our sinful nature so that we become more sanctified in Christ. So that's what I wanted to throw in there with verses 10 through 12. No, that that is really important to remember that, um, yeah, COVID could kill you uh, and, and a whole lot of other things could also kill you. Uh, it's so that there, there doesn't need to be uh, life lived in fear constantly. Um in uh, in verses sixteen and to the end of the chapter, uh, well, hey, this and there's here's a good application for COVID fears as well. Uh, Paul calls them in verse seventeen our momentary light troubles. Um, he says the things that we're going through right now, our outer self is wasting away. Uh, we're I've had more students recently call me old. Oh my. <laughs> And I'm, but I try to kind of embrace it. I'm like, yeah, I'll, all right, I'll be an, I'll be an old guy. I'll be a crotchety old guy. Uh, and well, that's that, my role. So I don't know. I've got that role filled. Oh, okay. I'll be the crotchety young guy then. Okay. <laughs> 
Yeah, he says our light and momentary troubles. And then he says in verse 18, we're not focusing on what is seen, but what is not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. And I was thinking about that this summer, I'm planning on a bike trip because I've got a a three-day district mission board meeting in Door County in Ellison Bay at the end of July. Well, I'm planning on getting up there by biking from Green Bay to Ellison Bay, which is about 100 miles uh, through hills and probably the heat and humidity of July. Well, how am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to focus on the end, on what is unseen. And then, yeah, there's going to be troubles and pain along the way. Hopefully, you know, I make it, don't have a blown out tire, any of that kind of stuff I've had. But you got to focus on on the end game. And that's, I think, a good picture of what Paul says life is, that uh, everything that you and I are going through right now, it's like a race, but there's something that's unseen. It's the end. It is, so often we talk about heaven, but we need to be around Jesus in front of his throne and in front of the throne of the Father with the Holy Spirit being there and the saints and the angels. Uh, you know, we focus a lot of times just being in the, the nice place of heaven and a mansion and the green pastures, but being there in the Lord's presence, uh, that's what we focus on. It's not seen, but that's the end game. As we uh, enter into chapter five, uh, Paul is talking about um, again, focusing on what is unseen. Uh, and in this case, it is the, the life to come. Um, it is the uh, everlasting life that Jesus has won for us. And when you know that, then you realize that this uh, earthly life uh, is is just temporary. And uh, it, I guess maybe a, a thought that comes to my mind is uh, something that I've heard Luther quoted many times as saying uh, he would call our human bodies maggot sacks. That yeah. uh, we're th- this maggot sack that we're carrying around because that's what it's headed for is worm food. Yeah. See, if I'm going to be old and crotchety, you can just take maggot sack. I'll be the maggot sack. You, you be the old crotchety one, and I'll be the maggot sack. Yeah. Um, it and uh, and Paul is talking about how we long to you know and and I even think of my son. Uh, I can't remember exactly which one, but they, they all looked very similar when they were younger. And uh, there, there was, oh no, I remember which one it is, but I won't say his name on the air. Uh, but he would, uh, he would say over and over, I just want to go to heaven. And, and he, would, he would be thinking, you know, some, some little thing that had gone wrong in his life. And, uh, and he, would, he would talk about wanting to go to heaven. And it's like, man, you're just starting out on your journey here. You, you've got a long time on this earth yet to be uh, uh, groaning in this tent that we're carrying around. Uh, but that's, that's the way that we, um, as Christians, often think. Yeah, and you mentioned the tent. That's what Paul calls us in verse in chapter five, verse one. So he changes the the picture language from being a clay jar to a tent. So, do you and your family like camping? We've done it uh, on a couple of times, but uh, we we don't dislike it. All right, because the last time that we went camping, we went with some good friends of ours. Their kids are the exact same ages as our four kids. And we're up in Elroy, Sparta, bike trails and camping. And 
it just poured rain for a whole day. We were kind of miserable in our pop-up camper, but our friends, they had tents and they were in a low spot and the, the water just ran right through the middle of their tents and washed them out. They haven't gone camping since. But what Paul is talking about here is, again, we forget this, that we're just camping here. Heaven is our home. That's a permanent place. You know, think of the uh, the camping in a tent in brutal weather compared to living in a mansion with an indoor heated swimming pool, basketball court, and bowling alley. That's the difference between living here on earth and living with our Lord Jesus in heaven. Uh, there's kind of a tricky little knot to untie uh, in verse 10 um, when uh Paul talks about appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. He then says, so that each one may receive what is due for what he did while in the body, whether good or bad. Uh, And if I just ripped that verse out all by itself, uh, it could very easily sound like, um, oh, I guess our deeds are what saved us. Um, I've not thrown you a curveball because I think I have a way to explain it. But if you have a way to explain it, you could... Uh, share that as well. Well, I was going to talk about that verse in reference to this question is uh, the book of life versus what I call the book of the damned. Hmm. So what are those? Uh, The book of life is uh, where God has written the names of those who are uh, his elect, that they they were predestined to be uh, eternally saved and there's no way that they can end up any place other than heaven for all eternity. And only their names are written there. Nothing they've done. Yeah, yeah, sure. The other book isn't named in Scripture. That's why I call it the Book of the Damned. And Yeah, I was going to say, that's a made-up word for you. Yes, it's not really in Scripture. (laughs) But but what's listed in there is everyone's names and everything they've done wrong. And that's where I think Paul's talking about here is uh, what they've done is written down. But I'll let you go ahead and explain. But I think another the way to look at it is thinking of what Jesus said about the sheep and the goats in Matthew's gospel, that um, come you who are blessed by my father, receive the inheritance prepared for you from before the beginning of the world. You didn't do anything to get this inheritance. It's a kingdom that was predestined to be yours. Um, and And then he goes and lists all these good deeds that they did. Uh, I think the way to understand it is it's it's like um, you get a, a amount of money, let's say, and um, the fact that you get the money period is totally a gift of God. He gives it by grace. He gives money by grace. Uh, let's say, let's say the money equals a, a home in heaven or a mansion in eternity, and um, the amount of the fact that you get the money is purely by God's grace. The fact that you get to heaven at all is purely by God's grace. Uh, the The rewards that are attached to it in measure to uh, what you've done on this earth um, are th- that that's where there's a correspondence. The um, uh, the let's say you know somebody would get a thousand dollars, somebody would get a million dollars, somebody gets. A, a wonderful spot in heaven. Somebody gets a really wonderful spot in heaven. Uh, either way, they're in heaven. Uh, 
and uh, it cor- what they receive corresponds to their deeds on this earth. And you could also say the same thing about those in torment. Uh, the fact that they're in hell is their own doing, uh, but the, the torment that they feel is um, uh, tantamount to what they did or did not do on this earth. I, I don't know if I'm making a whole lot of sense here, but I... I thought I thought I had a good way to explain this, but maybe not. Do, do you are you tracking with me at all? Well, the way I would explain it is this: is that you know you're right. God is going to point to people's uh, their works, not to show that they've gotten to heaven based on their works, but yeah. to show because they're going to heaven now. What they've done is a proof of faith or a lack of faith. And that unbelievers may do the exact same thing that you and I do as believers, and they look really good to their neighbors, but it doesn't look good to God. Nothing that they've done is pleasing in God's sight. And again, what you and I do compared to our next-door neighbors who may be atheists, uh, we, we look exactly the same to the outside eye, but one is going to heaven and the other is not. Uh- yeah, and I think yeah, okay, so good. I I think you you talked you 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 talked up what I said into uh you 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 uh professor panninged my answer. All right, that's I was I was listening to the sermon last that's night. That's right. So, no, but so I at, mentioned last night in my sermon that I had a professor professor panning at the seminary that could take any bad question and any wrong answer and make it sound good and right. And, and, uh, I never had him, but I've heard, I've heard similar stories. And, uh, so thank you for doing that. I think the one point I did want to make was that there are times, there are many times, especially in the gospels that Jesus himself talks about rewarding us. Uh, he incentivizes good works. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Yeah. Come and share your master's happiness. Yeah. So, it, so it's not, it's not a bad thing to talk about. God is God pays us for doing good things. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to, but he does. He says, I want to be so gracious to you that I'm going to even reward your deeds of faith. Yeah, because I don't think you and I are getting paid for this podcast. <sighs> That's right. That's so, right. I'm, guess, <clears throat> I'm guessing we're just getting a better place in heaven. Who should we talk to? About? Yes, yeah, we'll, we'll expect a reward yeah, later. We'll talk yes. to Pastor Hagen. Yeah. Uh, verse... 13, uh, he says, actually, if we were out of our minds, it was for God. If we are in our right minds, it is for you. I felt like I was out of my mind just talking a minute ago. (laughs) Uh, You know, Paul's referring to the fact that he might have seemed rather zealous in risking his life. Uh, And he was. Uh, And and there I want to commend the pastors. Again, this last year has been really tough. You know, some have taken shots. I know I've taken shots of, you know, our church has been very open. And that's just because the way I am. But I know other pastors have taken shots from people because they, their congregation has been more closed. But the key is the pastors, whether right or wrong, in the, in the eyes of the public or the eyes of the people, they're doing what they felt was best. Uh, not about safety and not, not necessarily about what's, uh, what the government is saying, but their job is to preach law and gospel, absolve sins, and give communion. And they felt this is the, what we, what I need to do to do that best. And I, and I think they may have seemed out of their minds to their people and their public, but they're zealous for the gospel. I, I think some uh, now that you say that, uh, that is certainly something that I've had 
students that have thought, is this guy out of his mind with his antics in the classroom? Uh, yeah. It, uh, it, but then it leads into such a beautiful uh, statement about how the love of Christ compels us and uh, one died for all, therefore all died. Uh, that is a phenomenal statement right there. That that carries a lot of weight. Everybody died when Jesus died. He He's the creator and when when the creator takes on flesh and dies, it, his his creatures are all, all die with him. The old you is dead. So talking about death, what's I know Paul isn't talking about zombies, but what's your favorite <laughs> zombie movie, Pastor Lightning? Uh, I the only one I can think of right now is called Shaun of the Dead. That's the one I picked. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but he's not talking about being zombies, but we do talk about dying to sin and we're raised to a new life in Christ. Uh, going to, I want to jump to verse 21, if that's okay. There's a lot of other good stuff in here about reconciliation. Uh, but verse 21, Paul says, God made him who did not know sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we often call that God's great exchange. Did you ever do God's great exchange as a outreach tool with people? Yeah, uh, many a time, yes. So what God's great exchange is it was an older uh, evangelism tool that we were trained in at the seminary and uh I remember back when I was a very young pastor, not old and crotchety, that uh Flying back from a missionaries conference in Milwaukee, uh, back home to Radcliffe, Kentucky, and being on the flight, and people don't know this about me, I really don't like talking to people, especially strangers, and especially on an airplane. Just give me a book, give me earbuds, and I'll be happy for the hour. But God had me seated next to this young private in his dress greens, and so I, I asked him some questions, and he was coming back from his mother's funeral in Kansas, and his mom had committed suicide. Mm. Well, I kind of figured, well, there's a reason that a pastor is sitting next to this young man. And so I talked to him. And uh, I, I went through God's great exchange. So I took my little napkin and my my pen uh, that was in my pocket, and, and I did all the little stick figures. Mm-hmm. You know, the stick figures that we're trained with is that uh, plus God, what God wants is plus holiness minus sin equals salvation and uh, minus what would be the other one uh, but what God sees is plus sin minus holiness and that equals damnation mm-hmm. and then you do the other stick figures of whether we balance each other out you know good works against bad works we compare ourselves to other people if God's taking us to heaven on an assembly line or a ladder we're trying to get to heaven by our good works and then you get to this verse that uh, God and Jesus on the cross takes our sin, gives us his holiness. He takes our death, he gives us life, he suffers hell, and gives us heaven. And then I handed my cocktail napkin to the young man. I don't know what happened after that, but that's really God's great exchange. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're, you're bringing to mind a, a bunch of stories that I've had about uh, sharing God's great exchange with people. Um, I don't know if we want to dive into all of them, but, uh, I, I did want to, uh, well, how about, uh, yeah, this, uh, impoverished family that I went to visit, 
that had called our church because they wanted food. And so I, I got together a bag of groceries from the food pantry and I went to their house and, um, I'm, I'm going around the room and they have a whole room full of people that are there to listen to me. And, and well, and I, I I think, I think I told them before I arrived that I wanted to not only give them the food, but also uh, talk to them about what our church teaches. And so I, I dropped off the bag and I, uh, you know, it was introducing myself. There were kids, there were moms, there were grandmas that were all interconnected into this family. And, and I kind of was, I kind of kept, it kind of kept coming back to these two women. And I, I sort of was wondering now, how do the two of you know each other? And one of the grandmas said they're partners. And, uh, so they, so this was a lesbian couple. And I, I thought to myself, okay, so do I come out swinging against homosexuality? But I thought, no, I'm going to present God's great exchange. And one of the, one of the two women in the couple was very, um, she, she was very overweight and you could tell she had a lot of health problems that they had been talking about her having. And the funny thing was that you, as you talk about going through it and you're, you've got the whole law section of, uh, this is what God sees. He sees that we're sinful and here's our man-made remedies of how we try to compare and how we, uh, uh, try to balance out our good deeds and, uh, and all of these things earn for us nothing but hell. And I'd been talking for a little bit by then and, and the, uh, over the more overweight, uh, woman was saying, uh, I need to, I need to get out of the, this room. I'm, you know, she was, she was like, I have this breathing issue and I, and, and some of the things that you're saying are, are sort of, uh, uh, adding to it. And, and she, and she was like, I just need, I need to take a break for a minute. And, and I was like, no, well, no, if you just sit still and, and list, keep listening, I'm about to get to the most important part. <laughs> And, and sure enough, she, she was fine. She kind of calmed down after I explained the gospel that Christ has taken our place. We have, uh, God has swapped, uh, his, our sinfulness onto him and his righteousness onto us. Um, and, uh, that, that was, that was kind of a neat experience. Um, can we, can we at least say one thing about the reconciling part? Just this is such a beautiful section where it says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Um, so no matter whether you believe it or not, God has already decided he, he does not count you guilty of sin. He, is, he has forgiven you. Now, if you die in that unbelief, Obviously, you, you're not going to benefit from that forgiveness. But this forgiveness is really for is really it applies to the whole world. It, it, God has forgiven the world. Right. I, I'm not preaching this weekend, so I just kind of glanced at the readings. But I'm pretty sure that we're talking about uh, you know, Jesus as the high priest, hmm. and the high Jesus as a high priest. He's bringing about reconciliation between us and God and angry God, an angry God, and justifiably angry over our sins. But through Christ, that anger is appeased. It's no longer placed on us. It's now placed on his son. Uh, Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, As fellow workers, we also urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. He says, look, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. 
last night in my Ascension sermon, and you can all listen to that because I uh, recorded it for Pastor Hagen to uh, give sometime next week. And it's all about outreach, that now is the time to get out of the comfort zones of our buildings, to leave the walls of our churches, to grow the kingdom of God, to make people through the Holy Spirit's work, the Israel, uh, the, the new kingdom. And, you know, Jesus says, you know, now is the time. Uh, he says, I must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Uh, we don't know when Judgment Day is coming. I think of a, a gentleman who, who is the father of one of our members. And she asked me when he was in the hospital, Pastor Lighton, to go visit him. And I was afraid to go visit him because I had seen this man in action as a grandfather of kids in our school at sporting events. He's not a nice guy. Hmm. And when I went to the hospital to see him, his other daughter, who is not a member, was there. He said, Dad, Pastor Zarling's coming. And the dad said, I could hear from the hallway, why is he here? I'm going to hell anyhow. So, oh, this is going to be a good visit. Mm -hmm. But I shared the gospel with him. I prayed the Lord's Prayer. He did pray the Lord's Prayer with me. His daughter asked me to come visit him again when he was in the nursing home. So he had gone downhill. But the day uh, I was planning on visiting, I got a call that night saying he had had a heart attack and he was unresponsive. Hmm. So I still went to the nursing home and we prayed and I had scriptural uh, scriptures to read with him. I gave them to the family to keep reading. But you know, who knows what happened? You know, By his confession of faith, he's in hell. Hmm. But the key is we can't just wait. Now is the day. Uh, for us to believe now is the time we need to get out and share the gospel. Uh, a verse of a hymn that came to mind with this one is, I hear the Savior calling. His call has urgency. Each, each moment souls are dying. Soon comes eternity. And so, my precious Savior, this is my humble plea. Prepare me for my mission, for you are calling me. There's urgency there. And I think it makes people nervous to... Uh, take those risks and to be aggressive with um, reaching out and making connections to the, the dying and unbelieving world um, because there, there's real danger in it too. And, and uh, that's, that's sort of what Paul, it, again, I'm going to refer to the lists of uh, the preachers rattling, rattling things off. But in this case, Paul is rattling off um, all of the things that, uh, Yes, there there is there is hardship that comes with it. You, when you put yourself out there and and you try to uh, share Christ with this uh, dying man, uh, and he even before you walk in the room, you can hear him uh, talking about uh, how he's not very appreciative of your being there. Um, uh, yet uh, with with all these risks, and those are real risks. There's also uh, great rewards and and great benefits that uh, come along with them, uh, in beatings and imprisonments and riots, uh, through glory and dishonor, through bad report and good report, uh, treated as deceivers yet being honest, treated as unknown, uh, dying and yet look we live, uh, punished and yet not put to death, uh, grieving yet always rejoicing. Uh, as having nothing and yet possessing everything, um, it it's it's the it it can feel like hell on earth, and at the same time, uh, preachers on their deathbeds would say um, 
I, I wouldn't trade those experiences for the world. Yeah. Uh, it, like you said, it's, it's hard putting yourself out there. And Paul says that too. Verse 11, we have spoken to you openly, Corinthians. Our heart is standing wide open. You know, think of that. You've, you've put yourself out there and people can stomp on it. Mm. And yet... Those are raw nerves yeah. and they can, they can stomp on it. Yeah. Yeah. And yet uh, that's what's so important. We have to do that. Uh, verse 14, uh, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So I'm curious how you've taught this in the past or how you would teach this specifically mainly to your high school students of uh, marriage of a Christian and a non-Christian. Uh, well, uh, I've had discussions about these verses. Uh, it, it's mostly with fellow pastors about the article of fellowship and um, whether or not we can call false teaching Christians unbelievers, uh, because that that seems so uncharitable and it seems so mean to call people who say so many great things about Jesus, and they do, and yet to call them unbelievers and say that that's the same as Christ having uh, agreement with Balliol. Um, I probably wouldn't go run here first and foremost to make applications to marriage. It certainly does have something to say about marriage that uh, you you are making a commitment to another person, and uh, if if you don't have faith in agreement, uh, you are setting yourself up for a whole lot of heartache or hardship uh, unless unless you've got some kind of special gift that most people don't. Yeah, and just being, you know, the yoke is, uh, in your minds, you have to picture this big wooden beam that you would have for two oxen pulling a wagon or pulling a plow. And if they're unequally yoked, that you've got a small cow and a, and a bigger one, uh, one, one's pulling a heavier load, one's pulling a lighter load, you got to be working together. And there I was thinking as I was working on my Ascension Sermon, we talked a lot about shared ministries last night and, and merging and so forth. And I saw an article, this is, uh, I think, seven years ago, that three churches in Racine, three Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, so very liberal Lutheran, that they are all merging into one congregation. And then on top of that, they were selling all three buildings and then going and moving into a Methodist church. And it said in the article, well, they're not planning on merging with the Methodists, but because they were already having full communion with the Methodists, they might just merge with them too. And you know, I just bring it up here because it came to mind of they were kind of uh, yoked together, you know, because they're all Methodists and the ELCA are just so liberal in their theology when you're talking fellowship. Whereas we, as Wisconsin Synod Lutherans, that we we pride ourselves properly so on being confessional and doctrinal, that we don't want to be unequally yoked with those other church bodies because uh, what happens is we don't make them more doctrinal and more confessional. They'll always bring us down to become less so. And it, it goes back to that analogy of the yoke, doesn't it? Because what, what do you have? You might think, well, look, there's this uh, other uh, beast of burden, this uh, bull or cow or something and and hey i'm a bull and a cow t- or a cow too and and we're both walking in a direction so it, wouldn't it be great if we could you know uh, divide our labor in half by uh working together 
but if you're pulling in different directions uh, and you're yoked together, um, you're, you're, you're going to accomplish less instead of more. Anything else you want to bring up in chapter six? Nope. All right. Uh, chapter seven. So then, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that defiles flesh and spirit as we seek to bring sanctification to its goal in the fear of God. Paul says the goal of our sanctified lives is to thank God for his goodness to us and to lead those around us to glorify God. But this does not take place if we're still taking part in things that defile flesh and spirit. He's saying we can't enjoy being a sinner and enjoy being a saint at the, at the same time. It's one or the other. We either defile our flesh, which is God's temple, or we say no to fleshly desires and honor God's spiritual temple. This chapter has a lot to say about um, some of the historic uh, anecdotes or events uh, of Paul's ministry, and particularly it's explaining what we talked about at the beginning of 2 Corinthians about Paul waiting for Timothy or for Titus, excuse me, and uh, and not finding him, but then finding him and how much joy that caused him. Uh, I think the really the only thing else that I wanted to say about it was just uh, in verse 11, where it talks about how sorrow is a good thing. It, it's, there's a godly thing that happens when you feel sorrow. You can also feel sorrow in an ungodly way. Uh, and uh, that's a lot of times, it sounds like maybe your guy in the hospital who thought he was going to hell was feeling some ungodly sorrow, at least at, at that moment. Um, but uh, uh there is a good use of godly sorrow, too. Right. Uh, worldly sorrow is uh, just having sinned and fear the consequences. Uh, that's like Judas. You know, he felt sorrow, but it was just of what he had done. Peter uh, had godly sorrow. He looked to Christ for forgiveness. And there, you know, I commend you, Pastor Lightnin, for being uh, a high school teacher. Because uh, I... You know, I put up with the, the high schoolers that I have in my house and then the friends that they come over only because I'm the dad and the dad of, uh, you know, being there for their friends. But I don't really want to be around high schoolers. They scare me. Uh, but I, I know I've said this numerous times to Pastor Lightning, and I think it bears repeating for all, you, all of you to hear is, you know, I've encouraged Pastor Lightning, uh, you know, not to be cool or edgy or flashy, because I don't think anyone would describe you that way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, be but, as nerdy as I can. Yeah, uh, because kids see through that stuff. Mm -hmm. But in, uh, he's heard me say this before, is to be John the Baptizer. You know, you don't have to be eating bugs and wear camel's hair clothing, but uh, I do like the penitential beard, though. No. <laughs> uh, but law and gospel. Repentance and forgiveness, confession and absolution. That's what's missing in these kids' lives at home, at their high school, many of them at their church, because they may say they go to church and they don't. Uh, and they don't need contemporary music or large group settings or paintball and pizza. They need to know the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Um. You're not the only one who's said it, it scares me to uh, think about spending time with high schoolers. Uh, th that, that was 
something that people at my congregation, well, maybe just one or two said before I accepted the call, um, that, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't handle teaching high school or teenagers. And, uh, actually I have to admit that is, that is what I thought to myself too. I thought, um, this, this scares me. This is intimidating. And maybe that is the exact reason that I need to do it. Uh, it's kind of like you were saying about, um, being aggressive with sharing our faith. Uh, I, you, you really do. You put yourself out there and expose yourself to, uh, these teenagers who see everything. They, they, they catch on and pick up a lot of stuff. And, uh, if they wanted to, they could, I, I know they could be really mean to me, <laughs> But uh, thankfully, they they haven't, at least as far as I've heard. And uh, I, I don't want to. I don't know if I want to hear any more other than that. But uh, I'm I'm ready to move on to chapter eight. If you're right. ready. So chapter eight, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because it ties in so closely with chapter nine on on giving. So I've got one verse I want to focus on. If there's anything that you want to get to first, Pastor Lightning. Um. I, I guess yeah we can we can certainly uh, tie in a lot of these same thoughts with uh, chapter nine next week. Um, so uh, I yeah I guess may as, you may as well just uh, focus on your one verse. Yeah, so I want to focus on verse nine. He talks about giving, but he ties it into this: for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Uh, so this verse points to Jesus' loving sacrificial uh, death for us as the motivation for the Corinthians' offerings and for our offerings. As the, as the eternal Son of God in heaven, Jesus was rich beyond compare, but during his humble life on earth, when Jesus gave up the full and constant use of his divine power and glory, he became poor. In order to gain the incomparable riches of heaven and eternal life for us lost sinners. I think so often we picture Jesus as being meek, helpless, a wimp. Uh, he just let others beat up on him. But that's not it at all. Uh, you know, Pastor Lane, to our chagrin, we really haven't used a lot of... Uh, Avengers and other movie references lately. So I wanted to use one okay. here. Uh, I, I want to picture Jesus here like Steve Rogers, who's Captain America in the Avengers movies. As he's knocked down and he's being pummeled, he says, I can do this all day. And that's the way I picture Jesus, that he allowed everyone to pummel him. The Roman soldiers, the Jewish Sanhedrin, sin, death, and the devil, the unholy trinity, but from the cross, he says, I can do this all day. And then when he's taken it all and they're worn out, he cries, it is finished. He breathes his last. He gives up his life. But just as importantly, he takes that life back up again. He became poor so that we might become rich. He died so that we might live. He suffered so that we might be saved. He endured hell so that we might be given heaven. If I could uh, summarize this chapter, I guess uh, one of the most important thoughts that strikes me is how much Paul makes um, giving your offerings into uh, a beneficial thing for you, that it, 
it's easy to think that, uh, you know, when you hear stewardship, well, first of all, stewardship has to do with a lot of things. Anything that you take care of or manage in your life is stewardship, but also money. And and Paul says, uh, you, you've done a good job in uh, all of these other areas of Christian living. And, and now I also want you to do well in this area. Uh, so see that you also overflow in this gracious gift. Uh, the ability to uh, give freely and, and happily toward uh, the work of God's church and, and toward charity. Um, and, and so that, that's, I guess, what strikes me the most about this chapter. All right. So then next week, we'll end our time with Paul in Corinth. So this is Pastor Zarling with Pastor Maggot Sack Lightning. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.